You're listening to a podcast of The River in Durant, Oklahoma. We hope that what you're about to hear will bless you and empower you to live the life that God has called you to live. We hope that it will strengthen you in faith and that it will help you better understand and better recognize who you are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, thank you. Now, hey, I just want to introduce a few people here real quick. Uh, let's let's get my youth leaders to stand up. I think I might still have some out of the room. Brandon and Lindsay have been helping out now for, what, like almost two years? Been a, been a huge help. Thank you, guys. They preach at the youth group pretty often. They help with Sunday morning services also over there. Kenny. Kenny's in the back here. Kenny, wave hi. Kenny's been helping out in the youth group for almost as long, and he's, uh, he's also been starting to help out with the band, as you saw today, which is great. Uh, and we got Dylan, Coy, Mitchell back there. Say hi. And Whitney in the sound booth, of course, my beautiful wife and co-youth pastor. <laughs> I feel like I'm missing somebody here. Where's Mariah? She's still helping out at the coffee bar, shutting things down, but Mariah has also been helping us out in the youth group. So we've really had some great participation from the church lately in the youth group, and we, we really appreciate that. Let me also get our youth to stand up, the youth that are in here. I think some of them are maybe helping out with children's ministry today and stuff like that, but all right. And one more thing. I just want to say one more thing here. Uh, we have a couple of former youth that got engaged this last week. Come on, Sydney and Cameron, stand up for a second. That's pretty exciting. Awesome. We love you guys. Congratulations. Sydney was like one of the first youth when I came here, and uh, she was like the first youth. There was times when it was practically just her there. Uh, then she got Cameron to come, and so that helped. But, <laughs> but yeah. So it's an honor to be here today. About... 103 years ago, 103 years ago next month, June 28th, 1914, a man named Von, oh, let me see if I can say this right, Von Herak, Von Herak looked over as blood splattered on his face from the man sitting next to him, Franz Ferdinand. A bullet had just shot through Franz Ferdinand's neck, pierced his jugular vein, come out the back of his tunic, and he was bleeding from his mouth onto von Herak. Meanwhile, Franz Ferdinand's wife, Sophie, fell to the ground saying, God, what's, what happened to you? And they just thought she had fallen over at first, but quickly Franz Ferdinand noticed that she had also been shot. And he said to her, Sophie, don't die. You have to live for the children. They kept asking him, you know, if he was okay. He said, it's nothing, it's nothing. That's pretty much all he would say until he died and his wife died. And that, that humanizing moment of, of Sophie, you have to live for the children, it makes it seem like just such a small and, and personal incident. But this was the event that sparked World War I. Franz Ferdinand was the Archduke and uh, he was in Sarajevo that day with a published route, uh, just doing a visit. And 
as he, as he had published his route ahead of time, maybe not so smart to do, he didn't realize it at the time, but they had somewhere between six and 20 assassins lining the street ready to kill this guy. Now, they've passed the first few, nothing happened. Not, they're not sure why they didn't act, but they didn't act. Maybe he was going too fast, maybe there were too many other people around that they couldn't do it safely, or who knows, maybe they just chickened out or changed their mind, thought, hey, I don't really feel like being a, becoming a murderer today. I don't know what happened. Then finally one guy got up the guts and he grabbed a bomb and he threw it at the car. It bounced off Franz Ferdinand's car and landed on the car behind him in the motorcade and blew up killing or injuring about 20 or 30 people, I think, but missing Franz Ferdinand. It was a failed assassination attempt. This was the same day. That assassin, you know, he, who just failed terribly, uh, decided, okay, need to get out of here quick. He took a cyanide pill and jumped in the river. Didn't work too well. The cyanide pill didn't kill him. He just made him start throwing up, and the river was only six inches deep. It was a little dry that time of year. So he got caught. So Franz Ferdinand then goes and sees the mayor, and he, he, you know, he's like, what, what in the world? You know, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm not quoting here, but, uh, but he's, he's like, I come to visit your city, and this is how I'm welcomed? And so they, just, you know, they shake it off, and they're like, okay, we're going to take a different route that nobody knows about. But they forgot to communicate this well to the driver, and so the driver gets back on the same route, Meanwhile, there's a man named Gavrilo Princip who had thought, maybe I'll get a second chance. It's not often you get a second chance at an assassination on the same day, okay? But Gavrilo Princip gets back on the route and gets somewhere where he hopes that he'll come by. Now, he's not supposed to come by. Franz Ferdinand is supposed to take a different route now and go to the hospital. Uh, but his driver goes the wrong way, and then suddenly they point it out to the driver, and they say, you're going the wrong way. So the driver stops to put the car in reverse, and he just so happens to stop at the perfectly wrong place, right next to Gavrilo Princip, the assassin who killed Franz Ferdinand. And you could argue that World War I maybe was coming one way or another, but if Europe was a powder keg, then this event, this assassination, was what lit the fuse. It's what caused World War I. And there's, without World War I, there's no World War II. It's what, it changed our whole world. This one little man that, how many of you guys have heard of Gavrilo Princip before? Okay. Not many of us even know his name, but this one man changed the world. Not in a good way, of course. But today we're going to talk about some people who have minor roles in history that we don't, we don't notice much, but that have, have had a huge impact. So this, uh, this sermon is called Minor Acts, Minor Acts, and we're reading from the book of Acts today because uh, we actually, this was, maybe this is a bad idea, I guess I've been learning too much from Dr. Holler with, you know, he did like Route 66, that was a very, very long sermon series, and I guess he messed me up in the head or something, and I decided, hey, we're going to go through the book of Acts chapter by chapter in youth group. So we've been going for about 40 weeks you know, because we'll skip one and, you know, then, then like one sermon will end up turning into a two, two or three part, you know. So it's been a long journey. And it just so happens that that sermon series on the book of Acts, where we actually read, by the way, in youth group, we read the entire book of Acts together too. But that just finished up this last Wednesday. So I wanted to do kind of a summarizing sermon here on the book of Acts. And like I said, we're going to focus on some of the minor characters, some of the characters you don't spend as much time on, you don't notice even. And we're going to start off in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 15. 
All right, in Acts chapter 115, it says, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who was served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong and his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. So if you thought the story of Gavrilo Princip and Franz Ferdinand was gory. You know, this is a little bit more. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called that their field. They called that field in their language a keldama, that is, the field of blood. And we're going to skip down to verse 21. It says, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of those men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So the first person we're going to look at is Matthias. And he's actually the antithesis of what we're wanting to look at in Acts, because this is about the only time we hear about Matthias. We hear about the 12 disciples a lot throughout the Bible, but Matthias gets added to that number and then drops off the field of view. We don't, we don't notice him. We don't hear anything more about him, really. And uh, what, what I want you guys to take away from that is, is with Matthias here, we're going to put the, the lesson learned is that titles don't equal greatness. Titles don't equal greatness. Titles don't make you great. Promotions, positions don't make you great qualifications don't make you great. Listen, this guy had to be qualified. He had to be, they had rules and standards of, okay, he has to have been here with us, with Jesus. He had to see Jesus raised from the dead. He had to hear Jesus from the beginning. He was qualified. He was given a position of great honor. He was given a title, but that's not what makes you great. Hey, Brian, do you know who, who Chester A. Arthur is? Okay, let me try somebody else here. Charles, you know who Chester A. Arthur is? Oh, here we go. Thank you, Greg. Chester A. Arthur was one of our presidents. Chester Allen Arthur. What do you know about Chester A. Arthur? Nothing. Nothing. Maybe there's probably somebody in here who's like, I can tell you some facts. Uh, but truthfully, I, I would have been like you. If somebody asked me yesterday, you know who Chester Allen Arthur was? I wouldn't have known. We know a few presidents, right? We know guys like George Washington. Come on. The first president of the United States, you know, we, we hear the stories about him where, you know, he was fighting and they would shoot at him and he looks later and there's holes in his clothes, but it didn't get him. We know Honest Abe, you know, and, and what he did to, to end slavery. We know, we know, you know, we know some big presidents. We know some of them for more infamous reasons than others. Some of them we know because they did bad things. Some of them we know because they did great things. Some of them we know because they're on our side. You know, they're a Ronald Reagan or maybe they're a Barack Obama, right? And they're like, like they're, they're kind of a, a good example for whatever, whatever side of the field you play. But just because you're a president, obviously, doesn't make you memorable. We haven't even had that many presidents, you know? But, but most of us can't even remember Chester Allen Arthur because he really didn't do anything that great. He really wasn't that memorable. Titles don't make you great. Your position doesn't make you great. You have to be great. You, you be who you are and be great. So don't seek the title or the position. And don't wait for permission. 
Poke the box. Listen, if you have not been given a title, that does not stop you from doing great things. Listen, you don't have to wait till you're a pastor to preach, okay? You have friends and family that need to hear the word of God. You can bring people to your house and you can have a Bible study by yourself. You can, or you can get out on the street and start preaching. Or you could talk to your pastor about preaching at church sometime. But whatever it is, you don't have to wait. And preaching is not the, the be-all, end-all of Christianity, guys. You need, you need to find what is your gift and use it. Don't wait for somebody to tell you to use it or give you permission to use it. Do something with it. Don't wait for the title. You have the ability. Take the initiative. Show yourself capable and faithful. A lot of people want the title and the position before they ever show themselves capable and faithful. But let me tell you, you're going to have trouble getting that position until you prove yourself. Now we're going to jump down to Acts chapter 5. So he was, Matthias was who, we, who we're not looking at, really. He, we're setting him at the side. It's, it's pronounced both ways, but Matthias is, is a proper way. It's okay, I understand. I think you guys pronounce your kid's name Matthias, right? So that's why, see, I'm not talking bad about him because I'm saying Matthias. Um, Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 33. So at this point, the disciples have been arrested for preaching the word of God, and they're, actually, they've been arrested twice for preaching the word of God at this point, and so they're about to be held on trial. You know, a lot of people really just want to kill them at this point. So when they heard this, it says in verse 33, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thudius, Thudus, appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him and he was killed and all his followers disappeared, were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You will only find yourself fighting against God. This was the Gamaliel at whose feet Paul studied. This is about the only other picture we have of him in the Bible. But this is who taught Paul. Now, to me, this is a great picture of what a wise man he was. I mean, that's a lot of wisdom in that statement. There's a lot of power in that. And by the way, that's some strong evidence for Christianity, by the way. Just the way Christianity started out as something so small and so oppressed, and it started off like so many other things that failed, but it made it and it grew to be the largest religion in the world. Cover the whole world. This, this one guy from, from Israel. But that guy was wise, and he was right. He would turn out to be right. They were fighting against God, and it didn't stop. They didn't win. You don't win a fight against God. Now, I can't help but wonder if Paul was there that day. Because you've got to remember, Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And here's Gamaliel. And where is Gamaliel? He's with the Sanhedrin. And in the next chapter, we see Saul at the Sanhedrin for another trial of the disciples. So in the next chapter, he's in the same place. And here's his teacher right here. I can't help but think that Paul was probably right there with Gamaliel when Gamaliel said, leave these men alone. If it's, if it's of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you can't stop it. 
you'll just find yourself fighting against God. I think these words were probably echoing in Paul's ears as the light shined from heaven while he was on the Damascus road and Jesus, the voice of God said, don't you find it hard to kick against the goads? He must not kick against the goads. It was almost like, almost the exact same words of Gamaliel when Gamaliel said, you'll find yourself fighting against God. Whew. I can't help but think that he heard that. Now, besides his association with this infamous Sanhedrin, there's no reason to think evil of Gamaliel. Now, this verse to me seems to indicate that he was even being led by the Holy Spirit. You see, the high priest Caiaphas, in a similar situation before, was also led by the Holy Spirit when he prophesied, the Bible says he prophesied, led by the Holy Spirit, that it is expedient for one man to die rather than the whole nation talking about killing Jesus. He was, he was advocating them killing Jesus, but the Bible says that it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him, prophesying. I can't help but wonder if the Holy Spirit was speaking through Gamaliel here. And I'd like to think that somewhere along the line, Gamaliel might have even remembered his own words and thought, well, obviously we're not winning this fight. Maybe this is God. I don't know. There's no indication of that, but I, I just can't help believe that that might be possible. But one thing we know, Gamaliel raised up someone greater than himself. So, our first, our first person that we're really going to look at, you know, ignoring Matthias, is Gamaliel. Raise up others. Raise up others. I'm, a, I'm pretty good with computers. I, I work with computers for a living. That's what I do. I can build a computer, yes. You know, I I've, I've, don't do it very often, honestly, but, you know, I've, I've done that some every now and then since I was like 12 years old, building computers and stuff, putting them together. However, if I were to travel back in time, hundred years, I would be no help at all. I, I mean, like, you think, I know all this stuff. I have all this technology. I can go back in time, and I can, I can be the one to invent it. I wouldn't have the slightest clue what I was doing. I would come back and be like, guys, we've got to build computers. They're like, what's that? I'm like, well, okay, let's see. First, we need a metal box. How do we make a metal box? Someone, okay, someone probably could figure that out back then. Let's make a metal box. All right. Now, the motherboard... Um, I don't really know anything about circuit circuitry and uh, microchip processors and microprocessing. I'm like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to start. I wouldn't even know what it's made of, honestly. I have no idea. I would go back in time with all this knowledge of, of what the future is like and not be able to help them even start the process. Be worthless. And that's because I have built on the discoveries, the experiences, and the knowledge of others, and so have we all. We build on other people's discoveries. We build on other people's experiences. We rely on that more so than ever in this internet age. That's why things are moving so fast and progressing so quickly is because not every inventor has to start from scratch again. Every, every day there's new ways to make it easier for someone to come out with something new. But we build on each other's discoveries, and you need to be that resource for people. If you've had, you know, an experience with God, you need to, to raise up people around you. Maybe it's your children. If you're a parent, definitely it's your children. You need to raise up your children to follow God. You need to teach them what you know, and you need to connect them with other people who know more than you. But even if you don't have kids, you have people you can influence. You have, you have a story you can tell. You need to make yourself a resource for the people around you and raise up others. Paul wouldn't have been Paul without Gamaliel. 
he would not have been the man he became. Make yourself a resource to those around you. Share your knowledge, your wisdom, your experience. Lift people up to build off of your accomplishments. And see, that's the kind of the scary thing sometimes for us. It's a little uncomfortable to think that they might become better than you. Paul, Paul far exceeded Gamaliel. History has mostly forgotten Gamaliel, right? A couple of footnotes. But Paul changed the world. Well, you know what? If you can let go of your pride, which is hard to do, I would, from personal experience, it's hard to do. If you can let go of your pride and let people exceed you, teach them, raise them up, and, and don't be afraid when they, when they go beyond you. All right. Next, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, verse 51. I'm going to skip to the very end here of this story because it's a very, it's a very long uh, chapter here. And, uh, but we're going to look at Stephen. So Stephen was appointed, actually, let me make sure here. I need to go back a little bit. I need to go back just a little bit so you can see how he started. Whitney, can you pull up? I think it's Acts chapter 6 at the very beginning. Acts 6 1, I think. Yeah, there it is. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, the number of the disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against their Hebraic Jews because. Their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention and power to power and the, to, I'm sorry, to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and some other guy. Uh, but they chose Stephen. Stephen was chosen to help distribute food, to be an administrator or you know a host at a restaurant practically. Um, that's what he was chosen for. But the very next thing we see, he's out there doing miracles and preaching the word of God. He didn't wait for a title like that. He went out and took initiative and started preaching the word. Now, it got him in trouble. He got into some arguments, and he got brought before the Sanhedrin. This is the next time where we see Paul, I mentioned earlier, at the Sanhedrin. Now, he shows up, and let's, uh, let's read what happened here. So we're in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says, you stick-necked, stiff-necked people, stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a, a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Now the best tip I ever got about interviews, I, might have, I think I might have shared this here before, but the best tip I ever got about a job interview was this. Uh, to interview the job, 
don't just walk into a job interview and say, say, you know, like, you know, answer all their questions as best you can. Like, please give me a job. Please give me the job. Ask some questions to them before you're done. You know, ask them. You know, what 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 benefits do you have here? You know, am I is this an environment where I can learn? Will I be able to progress? You know, do you have people who can train me? And you know, like or you know, is it is is this really a good fit for me? See, we we walk into jobs most of the time like we're desperate and we need it and please give it to me. But sometimes, sometimes honestly, you don't need that job. You might need to say goodbye to that job, move on. That tactic actually did help me uh, with a job interview that I turned down because I was able to ask questions. I was kind of able to process it a little better and think, you know, is this going to be a benefit to me or not? You know. So when you walk into your job interviews, turn it around, ask them a few questions, interview them. This, this is a two-way conversation. Well, that's kind of what happens here with Stephen. So they put Stephen on trial. They bring him in, you know, saying, you've blasphemed. And they say, you know, how do you answer this? Are you blaspheming? And what he does is he's, he goes back and he starts preaching, sort of. He goes back to Abraham, walks him through Abraham, and then uh, Joseph, and then Moses, and what he does, if you read it carefully, I read you the very last bit of it there because it's a long, it's a long message. But what he does is he turns the tables on them. They put him on trial and he turns around and puts them on trial. He's, li- he's like, listen, you're just like your ancestors. They ignored Moses. They turned away from Moses. They killed the prophets. And then look, they prof- prophets prophesied about Jesus coming. Jesus came. You killed him. You're just like them. And as if they're shouting amen to what he said, they start gnashing their teeth and start to stone him. They kill him. As if to say amen, here's what it says in verse 54. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. His last words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, echo what Jesus said on the cross as he died. He called out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Matthew 18, 18 says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I think Stephen loosed something in heaven that day. Matthew 23, 13 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You have the ability to open up the gates of heaven for people, or you can shut the gates of heaven in their face. The law closes the gates. Grace opens the door that law closes. Grace opens the door that the law closes. While they're trying to shut them out, he's speaking the words of God and sees heaven opened up. I believe Stephen set up Saul for salvation 
and the work of the ministry on that moment. It's like this epic battle between heaven and hell really opens. Because as Stephen's looking directly into heaven, they're gnashing their teeth and yelling at the top of their lungs and turning into murderous animals, right? It's almost like suddenly they're taken over by a demonic power. Meanwhile, Stephen is seeing the face of God and you see this clash here. Well, when heaven and hell meet, we know who's going to win. See, it's like it t- took over Saul, too, as he's approving it. The next verse says, and Saul approved of their killing. But they set their clothes at, Paul, at Saul's feet, and it's like it got on him because Saul was raised to be, a, you know, a knowledgeable man. He was supposed to be like a teacher. He was supposed to be like Gamaliel, you know? He should be, he should be one of the great thinkers of their time, one of the great speakers of their time, a great orator. Maybe at worst, maybe, yeah, he was supposed to be involved in the Sanhedrin and, and, you know, preside over some judgment among their people, which, by the way, are not supposed to end in stonings because they're part of Rome. Uh, but suddenly, instead of seeing him as a teacher and a preacher or, you know, a man of the, of the law, or the word of God, suddenly Saul is going around persecuting Christians. He's chasing Christians everywhere. He's approving of their death. And it's like he's gone insane, like something has gotten on him but the word of God will not return void. Stephen's sacrifice would not be in vain and his prayer for their forgiveness will be answered in the most powerful way as Saul sees the light from heaven on the road to Damascus. As God comes to the man who approved of Stephen's killing, but Stephen said, don't hold this against him. And God said, okay, Stephen, for you. And he comes to Saul and he calls this man who's become basically a murderer And he calls him into the ministry. Your forgiveness could be just what someone needs to break them free from the power of the devil. Loose them. Forgive them. Don't shut the gates of hell in their face. I mean, of of heaven in their face. Let them in. Loose them. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When you forgive them, it's like God saying, I forgive you to them. And God is going to invite them as you loose them. You might have heard of a man named Nate Saint who was a, a missionary to Ecuador uh, in, in, you know, in the last century. And they went to this tribe of, of you know, murderers and you know, warriors and they, they knew that it wasn't safe to go down so they would lower this bucket from their plane and they would just give them gifts. And they kept, kept doing that until the, the tribe started giving gifts back to them through the bucket. And they finally decided, you know, we know it's not safe. We know everybody who lands there gets killed, gets stabbed through with a spear. But they decided, I think we got, you know, a reputation going with them. We'll, we'll try it. And they land to go preach the word of God to these people. And they're immediately killed. They meet them. They kill them with their spears. Now, you may have heard this story before, and I'm not going to go into detail. But I want to tell you, the man that killed Nate Saint is the same man that baptized Nate Saint's son, Stephen Saint. That because that family, the family of the people who were killed, went back in forgiveness and kept ministering to those, to those uh, natives, those people were saved, came to know God. And Nate Saint's son, he, the man who killed his father, became a part of his salvation. You've got to forgive. Loose them. So Stephen, I'm sorry, I forgot to give you my point there. Stephen used heaven's keys Use heaven's keys, guys. One of, those, one of those keys to open the gates of heaven is forgiveness. 
So you don't have to be someone big to do this. Listen, Stephen was just in charge of distributing the food. He wasn't pastor. He wasn't preacher. He wasn't, he wasn't like a recognized prophet. I mean, they probably started to recognize him that way, you know, after a little while. But, but the fact was, he wasn't given a title or a position of honor per se. But he took what he had and he took the gift of God inside of him and he became, in my opinion, one of the lead reasons that Saul became Paul and became the, the minister to the Gentiles. So, I mean, we, we owe a huge debt to Stephen. Use heaven's keys. Now we're going to go to Acts chapter 9 and we're going to read about Paul's Damascus Road experience. <laughs> Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men, travel, the men traveling with Paul stood there speechless, from verse 7. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In verse 10, it says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Ananias is who we're going to look at next. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name, a.k.a. me. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Sometimes the call won't make sense. It didn't make sense to Ananias to go take care of Paul, who was trying to kill him and his friends. Sometimes the call is going to feel uncomfortable, Amen. but don't miss it. One of the greatest mistakes you can make in this life is to be successful in the wrong assignment. I can tell you as I was preparing this sermon, I, I spent several extra hours than I should have because I was, try I, I was a little bit overly ambitious with this sermon, to be honest with you. I, uh, you know, I said we've gone through the whole book of Acts already. I wanted to go through the whole book of Acts with you guys on like steroids, like super fast. Uh, so uh, I, I was like, you know, I was taking each chapter, like cut, cut this out, cut this out, like I'm giving you the super abbreviated version. And, you know, I was trying to work this all into it and, and then, but, you know, keep like the whole thing so we could like blow through the book of Acts all in, you know, a 45 minute sermon. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time preparing that and, and got like halfway through only. 
and thought, my goodness, this is a bad idea. This is a terrible idea. I got to stop this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is not, I'm, I'm trying to do two things at once. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to squash 28 chapters into, into 15 minutes or less of reading. And I'm just going to like drive people nuts. You don't want to be successful in the wrong assignment. You don't want to get that far into something and realize this is not what I should be doing. This, this uh, pastor had grown a church from, from about 22 people to where they finally needed a building. They got a building, and now the church was up to about 4,000 people. And for several Sundays, he had noticed this, this white-haired man sitting farther back in the back that just seemed like every time he would come in there, he would just start bawling. Finally, one of the, one of the ministers there approached the man and you know just asked him if everything was okay. And the man pulled out a wadded-up sheet of paper, and he showed him this piece of paper. And it was a drawing of their church. And this man shared the story. And he said that many years ago, God called me to start a church. He gave me detailed vision of what the church would be like, of what the church would look like. So much so that he went and got a professional to draw it up for him so he could see, you know, have, have it ready to start building. But in the process of starting the church, things got hard and he, he gave up on it. He, he decided it wasn't, maybe it wasn't God after all. And so he went into, you know, he did some traveling ministry, and then he went back and just got into the business world. There's nothing wrong with being in the business world, by the way, but he was called to start a church, specifically by God. And he saw this church one day, and it was the perfect match for what God had shown him and what God had called him to do. And because he had given up, because the call got a little bit uncomfortable, Somebody else was reaping the fruit that was supposed to be his, that God had called him to. Don't miss your call. You need to realize that even the most ridiculous role can have far-reaching reward. Ananias wasn't just praying for some ex-monster. He was praying for the salvation of the Gentiles. He didn't even know it. God can make sense of the senseless. I'm going to have Lindsay share a story of something God called her to do once. Hi. So there was this, I was at a, a camp or something, and there was this girl, and I knew her, and I knew that she liked the same sex. So she was very interested in women, which, okay, um, we're, we're meant to love everybody, but we won't go down that. So she liked women, and she had made it obvious and told me that she was interested in me. I do not like women. I am married to an incredibly handsome man. So, so the Lord is talking to me, and she's sitting over there by herself, and she's, I was a lot skinnier than I was, and she was very well taller and built and could squish me with her pinky. So the Lord's telling me, I want you to go, go sit by somebody. And he told me everything he wanted me to do before he told me who it was. And he said, I want you to go sit by this person, and you're going to hold their hand. But you're not going to hold their hand like you would just a friend. You're going to intertwine like you would with your husband or, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, you know, I guess I can do that. You know, no big deal. So then he tells me, I want you to sit there, and I want you to tell her you love her. I'm like, her. Okay, so it's a girl. Okay, so that's not too bad. Okay, I got the, okay. Sit beside her, hold her hand, say I love you. And then I want you to kiss her on the cheek. Mm, 
maybe it's a little, maybe it's just a kid or something. And he said, it's her. And I said, oh, no, I don't, I don't see. You mean, you mean her sister? Okay, her sister, I got it. No, her. You mean the, the one that likes me? You want me to hold her hand intimately and kiss her on the cheek? And he's like, yeah. And she would have been the male in the relationship. So she was, you know, and I don't mean that offensively, but she would have been the male in the relationship. So me doing all that was very awkward. And with her being the male, he told me, tell her butterflies and cupcakes. And I said, Lord, you know everybody. You know their heart. You know she don't care nothing about butterflies and cupcakes. And he's like, I need you to do what I ask. So I walked over there and I sat by her and I said, she turned around and looked at me like and I'm like Lord one more time you're sure this is her let like a shining light shine on just something this is her and I said okay so I reached over my hand shaking like I'm like okay all right and I grabbed her hand and I held it like this and the Lord said now and I grabbed it the right way and she looked over at me and she smiled that was the first time I've ever seen that girl smile she smiles at me and I was like didn't get, okay, I didn't get punched, cool, I'm good, so I'm holding her hand, and I lean over, and I hug her, and I kiss her on the cheek, and I said, I love you, and I said, and she just kind of tears up a little bit, and I said, and I need to tell you one more thing, butterflies and cupcakes, and she goes, what, and I was like, butterflies and cupcakes, and like, kind of dodging, I'm like, I'm about to get knocked out oh my gosh at a church event I'm about to see the floor and it's not the Holy Spirit so I tell her it again and she's like just bawling couldn't even understand and I'm like what calms down and she said I was gonna commit suicide tonight and I told the Lord he knows that I'm gay he knows that I'm would be the male in this relationship and I told him because no one would walk up to me hold my hand like that, kiss me and tell me I love you and definitely wouldn't say butterflies and cupcakes. He said, so I, I told God, if you're real and if I, need, if I have a reason to live, someone's gonna come up to me and tell me butterflies and cupcakes and kiss me and hold my hand. And so I met her the next day and we went out and she is living and healthy and whole and she lives for the Lord and I think she's engaged. So... If the Lord tells you to do something, no matter how weird it is, do it. But make sure it's the Lord. Make sure it's the Lord. <laughs> Amen. Thanks, Lindsay. All right. Matthias, titles don't equal greatness. Gamaliel, raise up others. Stephen, use heaven's keys. Ananias, heed the call. Now we're going we're gonna to go to a later part of that same chapter. So we're in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 36. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Once again, that was Acts chapter 9, verse 36. All right. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. And that's one of the reasons we're looking at her, just because that's a really dorky name, and it's worth mentioning. Um, she, she was always doing something good, she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body 
was washed and placed in an upstairs. I hope there's nobody named Dorcas here after I just said that. I'm sorry. If so, forgive me. You have a beautiful name. Um, her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. She just died. Now that I distracted you, let me get back to the story. She died. Her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still alive with him. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he called, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up, and he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Now, Tabitha deserves some special mention, partially because she's one of the first women of her day to earn the status of biblical mention and to be recognized as a disciple. Also, this is the first record of anybody being raised from the dead after Jesus, right? This is the first, not the last time that anybody was raised from the dead by the disciples. But Tabitha gives us a great picture of what discipleship looks like because it tells us very little about her, but it, but it says that she was a disciple and that she was always doing good and helping the poor. She was doing good and helping the poor. God cares about people in need. God cares about how we care for others. He wants us to be in, involved in, in blessing this world and, and helping out where we see a need. And Tabitha was obviously a person of good reputation because of what she did. When you're someone who helps like that, you're, you're a person of, of good reputation. And by the way, your reputation is the reputation of God in this world. Your reputation is the reputation of God in this world. So if you've got a bad reputation, well, I mean, I mean, no, no uh, judgment on you. You know, I mean, some of us, you know, have, have had rough lives and are, you know, new to Christianity, you know, Jesus has just become a part of our lives. It's not, like I said, it's not judgment on you. But listen, if you want people to believe in the God you believe in, when they hear you talk about Jesus, they're comparing your reputation to God's reputation. So be, be a person of a good reputation. Let people know you as someone who cares for people, who loves people. Not as somebody who's perfect, okay? But be a person of a good reputation. What will people say about you at your funeral? I don't like funerals. I don't think anybody does, right? But but it is always interesting, you know, when, when family gets up and talk about someone that they've lost or family or friends, loved ones, and and it's always interesting to hear what they'll say about about that person. One of the one of the things that I've I've heard a lot is that that guy would give you the shirt off his back. And A, I always wonder if it's true. B, I think I'm not sure I'm not sure people could say that about me. I mean I've never, I've never had to take off my shirt for anybody before. Um, but, but what will people say about you? Are they going to be able to, to praise, I mean, to not sing your praises, because we're, you know, we're not praising people, but are, we able to, are, we, are they going to look back on you like, well, I hope he made it. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe they're at the end. He wasn't a great guy, but... But he he was my friend for some reason. Um, so, what are people going to say about you at your funeral? At Tabitha's funeral, they said no. She's died. They washed her, and they're like, no, 
this isn't happening. She, no, not her, not Tabitha. She doesn't get, no, that's, no. We're going to go get, we're going to go get Peter and get this taken care of because there's obviously, there's been a mistake. I don't know if that was you, that was him. Whoever did that, uh, there, that was a mis- mistake. So we're going to get that fixed now, okay? Peter, come over here. Man, to have, to have a reputation like that, that, they're like, no, they just can't even die. It's just not going to happen. No. She must have been a pretty impressive woman. And when, this is just a side note here, but her name means gazelle. Whether you're talking about Dorcas or, or whether you're talking about Tabitha, it's two different languages, but it's the same meaning. It's gazelle. It's a name for beauty. Let me just, just tell you this. Uh, Lisa Bevere has a book called Lioness Arising about women in ministry. Now, this is, this is a church that empowers women to get in ministry, okay? We have, a, those of you that don't know, if it's your first time here, we have a female pastor. Our pastors are out of town. Our worship leaders are out of town. We have a female worship leader. Uh, we empower women to get in ministry, okay? We believe that God has called them to ministry, just like Dorcas, Tabitha here, was in ministry. It doesn't say she was a preacher, but she was in ministry. We could talk about Priscilla, but we're not going there today. But let me just say, Lioness Rising is about, you know, them finding their, their inner strength and becoming, you know, and that's, that's great. That's good. But let me just tell you this also. Be who you are. If you're a lioness, be a lioness. If you're a gazelle, be a gazelle. I just love that when, I, when, she, when he says, Tabitha, rise up, he's saying, gazelle, rise. It's, a, it's an interesting contrast. You don't have to become this, you know, you don't, you don't have to become a preacher. You can, but be who you are. Whatever you are, be that to the fullest. So Dorcas teaches us to be a disciple. Be a disciple. All right, now we're going to go to, uh-oh, I didn't write this down. Uh, it should be the next chapter, yeah. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, I'll wait for it. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. Have you ever wondered, by the way, why it was Peter and not Paul that preached to Cornelius? This is the first Gentile salvation. Peter is the disciple to the, or the apostle to the Jews. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Why is it Peter here who is bringing the first convert convert of of the Gentiles into, into the church? I'm going to say it's because of Acts chapter 15, where the church comes together to decide about this argument of, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do the Gentiles have to follow the law? Well, Paul was on the side of, no, they don't. But Paul was, didn't have the authority among the disciples and among everybody else that Peter did. And Peter stood up among them and said, I was there. I preached the word of God to them. I never said a thing about circumcision. I never said a thing about the law. And when I talked about the grace of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came on them just as it came on us. So we're saved just like they're saved. And it's not through circumcision. It's not through the law. It's through what Jesus did. It's through grace. Peter, this is like the one one good encounter he has with Gentiles here, is he brings them into the kingdom and then he's able to defend them and then send out Paul to take care of it from there. 
So I think, once again, this was another one that was setting Paul up for ministry. But that's off subject. Cornelius got God's attention. Get God's attention. There was a pastor who uh, had been, you know, he'd been pastor at his church for several years, and people were getting a little bored of hearing him preach, you know. It just, there, the fact was, he was looking out in the audience very often while he was preaching, and he would see people dozing off and sleeping. And uh, one day it got so bad that he looked out in the audience, and his wife on the front row was asleep, and he thought, there's something, I, ha- I have to do something about this. Uh, I have to be able to get people's attention, wake, wake them up. I have to do something here because this is not working. Obviously, I'm a boring preacher or something. But so he goes and he talks to his other pastor friend about it. He's like, you know, he's complaining. He's telling him what, what a hard time he's having and how nobody's interacting. They're not, they're not shot back. He's not getting any amens. Amen? Amen. And then, uh, so he's, he's complaining to them. He's complaining to him. He's like, I don't know what I need to do. And the guy's like, I've been there. I understand. I've got the solution for you. Trust me, I did this in my church. It worked perfectly. You stand up in front of them on the stage and you say, the best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. The pastor looked at his friend like, what? I can't say that. And the guy's like, wait, my mother, my mother. And he's like, oh, okay, okay. So he's like, okay, I can do this. I can get their attention. So he, he goes up on stage at church. He's preaching. He's reading the Bible. He starts to notice people dozing off. And he's like, the best, some of the best years of my life, he was smart enough to say some of for his wife, some of the best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. Everybody looked at him in shock. The elders looked at him. His wife was sitting on the front row glaring at him like, what is this? And he got nervous. All of a sudden, I can't remember who the woman was. (laughs) He had their attention now. (laughs) Don't forget your punchlines. Uh, But how did Cornelius get God's attention? He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. Now, as far as that giving generously, we just saw the same thing in Dorcas' life, her generosity, her care for the poor, and Stephen, who started off just being an administrator, making sure that people were getting food. And Philip, who we skipped over, he was another one that was just assigned to help us give, make sure people got food. But he became a powerful minister. He became a, a witness of the gospel. He had four prophets for daughters. But they just started by caring for people. And that's one of the first things we see about Cornelius. God sees your service. Sometimes you may not feel seen. You may not feel like you've been acknowledged, like people don't see all you do in the church or outside the church in your, in your family, in your life. You may not feel acknowledged. But there's a special honor before God when you serve him without man's recognition. God sees your service. Now, there's something else he did to, to get God's attention. Whitney, can you play that video for me? And turn up the brightness a little bit so you can see it. But. Whoops. Pause the music. That's, that's music and a video going at the same time. There we go. Put the volume up.
All right. <laughs> All right. If you want to get God's attention, a good place to start is by talking to him. Can you believe that? We're pretty used to getting people's attention that way. That's a pretty good one. Hey. Hey, Samantha. All right. Hey. How you doing back there, Andy? All right. We're, we're pretty used to doing things that way. It makes sense, right? So it makes sense with God, too. Talk to him. Pray. It says, it says that you're, you're giving to the poor and your prayers have come up before God as a memorial. Talk to God. God, and out loud, by the way, you can think about God all day, but talk to him sometimes. Let yourself be heard. God hears you, but be heard. He doesn't, he, he hears you, but he doesn't hear you if you're not talking. Be heard. Now, there are some other people who stole God's attention in particular ways in the stories of Jesus' life. There was a woman with an issue of blood. There was a, a soldier with a sick son. There was a Gentile dog. There was a blind man who cried out after him. There was, these were all people of audacious faith. Some of these people are the ones that Jesus said, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. That gets God's attention. Faith. Listen, God's eye is on the sparrow, but he gives special attention to faith. Psalms 34, 15. I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to open there. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. On who? The righteous. And the righteous shall live by faith. Be a person of faith. Live, live an audacious faith, and that'll get God's attention. Cornelius had a very interesting sort of faith because he was not a Hellenistic Jew. He was not a Greek who had converted to Judaism. He was a Greek who was a Greek who was a Greek. Well, maybe he was a Roman. I could be saying that wrong. But he was a Gentile who was a Gentile who was a Gentile who worshiped and prayed to the God of the Jews. And that really didn't make sense to just about anybody because he wasn't a convert. He's not your God. Yes, he's the only God, but he doesn't, he's, you're not one of us. You're not one of his people. So whatever. But he must have had some sort of sense that despite not being circumcised, despite not having the law, that, that somehow he could know God. And he was right. But that kind of faith took a lot of evidence to everybody on the outside. They had, it takes a few more chapters before they start figuring out, okay, yeah, they really, they don't, they don't have to cut this off or do whatever to, to join. They, they can know God as they are. You can come as you are. So if you want to get God's attention, take care of people, care for people, and speak to him. Let yourself be heard. And live with an audacious faith. So Cornelius was get God's attention. And we're almost done here. I'm coming to a close. I think I'm running a little long. It's 12 till, so we might not get out at 11.45 like usual, but I won't make you late for lunch. Acts 27.20, we'll rush through these. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. There's someone we've been ignoring this whole time in the story of Acts, and he's very easy to ignore, and he actually, he really comes on the scene, although, although we, we hear from him the entire time. He comes on the scene in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Paul had been traveling around ministering. It says, after Paul had seen this vision, we got, we, we got ready. Up until that verse, it's they and he and they and he. And now it's we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's really easy to forget the narrator, <laughs> 
Acts chapter 1.1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. This is Luke. This is Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Luke. This is Luke book two that we're reading. Luke, tell what you've seen. Tell what you've seen. Luke wasn't a man of great ambition, it doesn't seem like. When I think about writing a story, I'm usually the central character in my story, whether it's a different name or not. But Luke barely even acknowledges that he was there. I mean, he throws in a wee, but it's like nobody even notices. Luke's telling what he's seen with no, with no worry about people noticing, hey, look, guys, I was with Paul. I'm Luke. Look at me. I'm one of them. Look, I'm doing miracles. I'm preaching. No, he's, he's telling other people's story. He's satisfied to tell what he's seen. You don't need a title or fame or position to impact the kingdom of God. We've come full circle here, haven't we? Just about everybody that we've looked at here didn't have the big titles. They didn't have a great high position. But they all had such an impact on the kingdom of God. Luke wasn't worried about everybody knowing his name. He wanted everybody to know the name of God. The kingdom is upside down. The first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Luke, I think, understood that really well. You don't even have to have your own crazy testimony of what you've gone through. The testimony of the disciples was what they had seen and heard from Jesus. They weren't going around preaching about all the people they had healed. They went around preaching about all the people Jesus had healed. So you have a testimony. It's Jesus's. Tell what you've seen. If you haven't, if you haven't had a bunch of crazy stuff happen in your life, you know that you can tell your stories. Tell what you've heard from Pastor John. Tell what you've seen in other people's lives around you that they've seen God move. It's just as real. It doesn't have to be about you. It's it's about God. I'm gonna close out with one more person here. Just to kind of sum it up, though, we've gone over Matthias. Titles don't equal greatness. Gamaliel. Raise up others. Stephen, use heaven's keys. Ananias, heed the call. Dorcas, be a disciple. Cornelius, get God's attention. Luke, tell, you, tell what you've seen. And the other one we just mentioned briefly, just a second ago, if you noticed it. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. I don't know anything about Theophilus, honestly, except what his name means. His name means friend of God. You, friend, are who this book was written for. Luke's writing to you, friend of God. He's telling you these stories. So for Theophilus, read the word. There's power in these words. When you read through the word of God, it will affect your life. God is speaking this to you, for you, for your edification, to empower you, to teach you, to teach you about who he is, to reveal himself to you. It's there for you. You just have to access it. Open the book.